Well, here's the number for questions, as always. So it's also on your handout online, so text your questions uh, during class. So <clears throat> we're at the hinge point of the letter. And, we, and in our last lesson, we turned the corner from theology to application. I mean, I kind of hate those words, but the first part was uh, Paul talking about who you are, <clears throat> and the second part of the letter is what then does that mean? And so I want to talk to you in this lesson, what Paul wants to talk about in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Ephesians is what does it look like to live the Christian life? But let me remind you where we've been. So this letter opens as well as any letter could open. He says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And so he's speaking to believers, Christ followers, and he says that we probably totally underestimate how richly we've been blessed with everything that matters in eternity is ours. He says you've been rescued or saved from your former way of life which led to death. You've been rescued from that by God's grace, meaning his favor through placing our trust in Christ, through faith. You're saved by grace through faith and that's what that means. Well then chapter four comes along and you get this turn to uh, the idea of living in a manner worthy of your calling. So Paul says, given that all this is true, that you have been chosen before the foundation of the world, Christ died to redeem you, to purchase you back from the slavery into which we had sold ourselves, and the Spirit of God seals you, lives inside you. He says, given that that's true and that's who you are, now go conduct your lives in a manner that's worthy of who you are. And so the first thing he talks about is one of the signs of that is preserving the unity of the spirit. That was the subject of our last lesson. What does it look like? One of the implications of this new identity that we get is a sense of unity with one another. And we talked about the idea that amongst Christians and in our denominational world, now we're talking about Christ followers, is that you can be wrong without being evil. In other words, the fact that Christians disagree about certain things is not something that would make us break fellowship with one another. It's possible that we might decide to worship at different locations, but that doesn't mean we have to dislike each other or be hostile to one another. You can be wrong without being evil. The second thing is, is that unity is not the same as conformity. And so we, we use this uh, statement, the idea that the Christian life, and I think this is, is true, is that in essentials, unity is required. There are essentials of the Christian faith. But in non-essentials, there's liberty. In other words, we may understand some of the non-essential things in the scriptures differently. In fact, we will because the scripture doesn't really intend to tell you everything about some of the non-essential. It tells you everything you need to know about the essentials of the faith, but doesn't bother to tell you everything you might like to know. But in everything, love. Charity is the old word for love. In everything, let's be kind and loving to one another. 
regardless of the circumstances. So we talked about the basis for unity is the idea of conforming together to the truth of God's word on the essential issues and in everything else, let's give each other some grace. One of the questions that came in was what are the essentials of the Christian faith? And so I referred you to a series that I did some time back called uh, What Every Christian Must Believe. Well, as they got looking for that, they dusted off the archives. That's 11 years old. That's kind of hard to believe. Well, needless to say, the essentials of the Christian faith have totally changed in the last 11 years. <laughs> Joking, of course. But it made me realize, let's just do that again. So when this series on Ephesians is finished in October, we will just roll right into a series and we'll talk about what are the things that all Christians have to believe to be Christian. In other words, the essentials of the faith, the things that it's really not okay to have differences of opinion about. And we'll see what the scripture says about that. So we'll, we'll do that at the end of this uh, study of Ephesians because I think that was a good question. It's good to revisit what are the foundational elements of the faith particularly when, if you think about it, the world would like, every organization has boundaries. I mean, you can't, you know, you can't really uh, join Greenpeace and be all in on oil production. I mean, it just doesn't happen. They won't let you in. You know, it's like you can't be a member of the Vegetarian Society and bring your burger to the meetings. They, they just won't let you in. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Every organization has, I mean, some kind of boundary around it. Well, so does Christianity. I mean, so does every other religion. But the world would like to take an eraser and just kind of start smudging the boundaries, if you will. And I'd like, I think, and I think it's important for us to look at what does the scripture say is inside the box that isn't really subject to disagreement. So we'll study that when we finish this. Well, as Paul starts to talk about the implications then of living the Christian life, I'm gonna skip ahead just a little and I wanna give you a sense of some of the things that he says. So, Ephesians 4.25 through 5.11 is a little piece where he begins to just give some teaching. He says, therefore, put away all falsehood and let each one of you speak the truth for we are members of one another. If you're angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The thief should no longer steal, but rather do honest work. Why? So that you will have something to give to people in need. You should not have any corrupting talk coming out of your mouths, but only what is good for building people up. So it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, the very spirit that seals you, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of bitterness, get rid of wrath, get rid of anger, uh, clamor, slander. Put away from you all those things along with any kind of malice. In fact, you should be kind to one another, tenderhearted. You should forgive one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. And let's go on. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. But sexual immorality and all impurity and greed, I'm gonna just 
translate covetousness as greed, same, same word. Any greedy attitude must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead give thanksgiving. You may be sure of this, that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or greedy, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not partner with people in those kinds of conduct. At one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of light. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. So let me just stop there and just say, what we just read was a whole bunch of do this, don't do that, right? And that's just a little sample. In all the letters, you're gonna find instructions uh, that this is how you should live. This is what you should do. This is what you should not do. This is how you should think. This is how you should not think about things. So the New Testament is kind of full of that. And so that leads you to kind of a difficulty in, and people react in different ways to this, in what then does it mean for me to live the Christian life? Well, you know on the one hand that it's not just a bunch of commands but you also know you can't ignore this and say, yeah, I know that you know, this, these are not suggestions. You know, these are, this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And so I find that people usually react two ways when they read things like this and they say, you've been saved by grace through faith. God chose you. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You belong to Christ. Now live in a manner that's worthy of who you now are. And so you start seeing all these specific things that you're to do. And so I think people react two different ways. And so I use the myth of Sisyphus, which I put on your handout, because this really represents one of the ways that I think Christians try to live the Christian life. The myth of Sisyphus is very old, ancient Greek myth, very funny, very interesting. Uh, but I'll just tell you the, the summary of the tale. So Sisyphus was a man who basically made Zeus, the king of the gods, angry. He escaped from Hades and was out living his life, and Zeus was furious. And so Zeus condemns him for all of eternity to roll this stone up the mountain, he would strive and strive to roll the stone up the mountain. And just as he would get to the top of the mountain every day, it would elude his grasp and it would roll all the way down, back to the beginning. And Sisyphus would walk all the way back down the mountain and start again, doomed to never be through with this, with this endeavor. So that's the myth of Sisyphus. We, you may or may not have heard this much, but you should start using it now. Uh, and that is, if you've ever heard of something that's a Sisyphean task or a Sisyphean endeavor, what that means is it's an endeavor in which you're gonna work really hard, but you have no chance of success. So you can see where it comes from because he was destined to work really hard and almost get there, but never actually get there. I'm convinced that many government programs are Sisyphean programs. 
You know, it's like we're going to put a lot of money and work into it, but we will never actually achieve success. In any case, I really think this is the model for the way a lot of us approach living the Christian life. So we know that we belong to Christ and we read things like we just read and we think to ourselves, we need to do these things. And so we need to become this kind of person. Like if you remember the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We think, oh my gosh, I better start cultivating all nine of those things. Maybe I'll just do four this week and I'll get the other five next week. But we'll start cultivating those things. I need to start being kind to everybody. I need to quit lying. I need to do, in other words, we begin to attempt to do this. And it makes the Christian life, uh, I've used the other analogy as a roller coaster. And that is, I'm doing pretty well. Well, I'm not doing very well. I feel really close to God. Well, I don't feel very close to God now. I feel really assured of my salvation. Well, now I really don't. You know, I don't feel like I'm worthy. I don't feel like I'm actually doing the things that God told me to do. Probably everybody can sympathize with that one way or another. The idea of striving to obtain the goal of becoming what the scriptures tell us is the way that Christ followers look. And so we, we get on this treadmill and we try to do it. And it's a difficult it's a very difficult thing. It's, it can lead to either just either the high of highs like I've achieved, or it can lead to the low of lows. It can lead to us making, those of you that are uh, type A's, you get your chart out, and how many times did I read my Bible? How many times did I you know, uh, snap at somebody at work? And how many times? And, and you begin this improvement process. That's not how you live the Christian life. And I, I suspect if you've done that for very long, you realize, I'm glad you said that, Terry, because it's awfully hard to find the joy and the peace of the Christian life when you're be being Sisyphus, basically. Well, people take another approach. And oftentimes, you take this approach once you realize, gosh, that goal seems very unattainable to me. And you read the Sermon on the Mount and you go, man, that's just not even possible. You know, turn the other cheek, uh, love my enemies, uh, forgive those who sin against me, have compassion for those who don't deserve compassion. Like, whoa, you know, this is, seems unobtainable. It seems like a Sisyphean task. Well, the other way that I think you see, and this is pretty popular right now, the other way to go is to basically, let's just leave the boulder at the bottom of the hill and let's go ahead and lower the standards. This is so popular, this approach has a name. Uh, several years ago, I mean, it's been quite a few years now, there were some studies done of younger people, kind of the next generation of Christians, and asked them a lot of questions about how they understood the Christian life. Uh, living the Christian life, Christian fundamental beliefs, and it was really interesting what came back and they named this because it was so prevalent. It's like the whole generation believes the same thing. And the name that was given to it to describe it was moralistic therapeutic deism. And you may have heard that, moralistic therapeutic deism. And it is a phrase that describes what a whole generation of Christians believed about the Christian life. 
And here's essentially what it was. I'm going to summarize it from the, from the uh, survey results. Is basically the idea was that you need to love God in whatever way that means something to you. Because love is kind of like, I call it a Play-Doh word. You can kind of shape that word in our society to kind of mean whatever you want it to mean. And so whatever it means to you, you should love God. And you should love other people. And that also can mean kind of whatever you, sense you make of it. I call it the gospel of niceness. Because really what, what people said in those survey results was, you should just be nice to other people and try to basically be a good person. There wasn't any mention of any of the things that we just read, for example. Nothing from the Sermon on the Mount. None of this, whoa, I'm just not into lists, you know, don't give me this, be kind to one another, be forgiving to one another. You know, I'm just not into that. I'm just gonna kind of be loving to God and try to be a good person. That's moralistic therapeutic deism. So you can see how it's a really different approach than rolling the boulder up the hill. In other words, I'm going to become all of those things. The problem with moralistic therapeutic deism is it really ignores a great deal of what's in the scripture and it becomes very subjective. You get what I call a kind of a cultural religion, a cultural Christianity that says there's not really any specific rules you just need to look inside your heart and try to be nice to the people that deserve being nice to. So I find that Christians tend to approach this tension of I can't seem to become all these things. It's almost like playing that old game whack-a-mole. Anybody ever seen that game? It's amazing how it'll keep you occupied is you just try to whack these moles and every time you whack one, the next one pops up. In fact, I'm pretty sure that was most of my business life. I, I think it was just a big game of whack-a-mole. You know, it's just trying to solve one problem or another. I'm pretty sure raising our kids was one major game of whack-a-mole. You know, it's like, try to control these guys. But in all seriousness, people take those two approaches. And I'm gonna suggest to you that nothing in the scripture would say to us that either one of those things is an acceptable way uh, to live the Christian life. Neither one of those is the way to live the Christian life. And here's why I think that. If you remember when Jesus spoke to the people, one of the things that he said was, everybody who's uh, laden and you're bearing a heavy burden, come to me and I will give you rest. And then later he says, peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. Not the kind of peace the world gives that's real situational, circumstantial. I'm gonna give you peace that actually lasts. You get the sense of Christian joy. So when you put all that together, you realize that whatever living the Christian life looks like, that should be a part of it. And the problem with these two approaches is that neither one of them really has an element of peace and joy in it. One of them's not very Christ-focused at all, and the other's so Christ-focused that you can, barely, you can barely do anything else. In fact, those two approaches are pretty much mirrored the uh, really well-known parable of the lost son. I think we call it the prodigal son. You know, the Sisyphus is the older brother. I will be good. 
I will achieve this. And moralistic therapeutic deists are the younger brothers. Hey, I'm free. Uh, you know, I, I'm so secure in myself, I'm just going to go live the way I want to. And as you can tell from that parable, neither one of them are approved in that parable. They both are having, you know, have issues with Jesus in that parable. So neither one of these are the way to live the Christian life. And this is why I think this passage in Ephesians is so important. So what is the way to live the Christian life? This is much more the picture of the Christian life. And this is a better paradigm than the moralistic, deistic view or the Sisyphean view of I'm going to become what God wants me to become. If you think about Ephesians chapter one, one of the things it said was is that you've become a citizen of the kingdom of God and you have become a child in God's household. You literally have become part of God's family. This idea of family is the overriding idea in all of the New Testament about what it looks like to live the Christian life. Think about, remember Jesus when he said to his disciples, I'm gonna leave, and they're, they're obviously devastated, and he said, don't be troubled and don't be worried because if I go, I'm gonna prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I will come and get you and you will be with me. Well, most of you probably know that's a reference to a first century, well, actually many centuries tradition in that part of the world, not uniquely Jewish, but very much in that part of the world, is that when a young man and a young woman are going to get married, housing market not being as robust as it is right now, you would live with the parents. And so the boy and his dad would go and they'd build a, a room. Many of you have heard this in sermons, but some of you may not. But this is the custom and this is to what he's referring so boy would go home, he and dad would build a room on to the house. And when the room was ready, because they all ate in a common area and it was very much an extended family dwelling called an insula. Well, when the room was ready and the dad said, yep, this is ready, you can now get married. And they would have a procession and the bride would be waiting like, what's taking you guys so long? And we're gonna get married and then she would go and they would live in his father's house and they would be an extended family. So when Jesus says that, he says, I'm gonna take you to be with me. Well, we think of that as heaven. That's true. What's the metaphor he's using for heaven? A big, comfortable, warm, loving family. The idea of family is the controlling image you'll see through the scriptures. There'll be other analogies to the Christian life, but the most controlling image is that of a family, of joining a family. And so Christian, living the Christian life should not look very much like rolling that boulder up the hill. It shouldn't look like the prodigal son off doing your own thing. It should look a lot like joining a family, a loving family, you know, one of that feeling of I'm home. You know, if you've ever been away from home for a long time and you come home, it's, there's almost an indescribable feeling of joy, right? And peace and, and everything's right with the world again because I'm home. I'm with my family again. That's what the Christian life is like. Tim Keller says it this way, <clears throat> that for us as individuals, and I wanna look at this in an individual sense, what does it look like for you and for me to live the Christian life. He says this, that gospel renewal means 
that the gospel doctrines of sin and grace are actually experienced, not just known intellectually, meaning it's not just a list of commands I need to live up to, nor is it just a, hey, let's just love God, love people, and go do my own thing. He said, actually, you need to experience both sin and grace. Personal renewal includes an awareness and conviction of one's own sin and alienation from God. And you see in ourselves how deep the layers of self-justification and uh, unbelief and self-righteousness are. In other words, it's, it's basically having a view. Gospel renewal is having a view of what I was and what I am. And so I want to take a verse out of chapter 2, and I want to talk about this. This is the essence of living the Christian life. And if you have questions, text them in, because I really want to make sure we get this. If you're rolling a boulder up a hill, you can stop. If you're out doing your own thing, please stop. And instead, I'd like for you to think about it in this way. So look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Beautiful passage. It starts with you and me. It says, as for you, as for Terry, you were dead in the trespasses and sins that you used to live in when you used to follow the course of this world. This is me before encountering Christ. This is you before encountering Christ. You were uh, without, later it says this, you were without God and without hope in the world. We were dead men walking. He says, we all used to live amongst the passions of our flesh, the desires of our mind, desires of our heart, desires of our body, and we were by nature children of wrath. What does that mean? It mean we were by nature alienated from God. We had turned our backs on God. He said, that's what you used to be. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you have been saved. Now, why did I <clears throat> write this this way? Because this is all together. I wanted to put a gap in here for this reason. Here's what I'm gonna suggest to you. Is this the gap between what I was, dead in my sins when I used to follow the way of this world, and what I now am, made alive together with Christ, this difference and the size of this gap is the proportion of joy and peace that we feel. I want you to think about it. The proportion to the size of that gap is the size of the joy and the peace that you and I feel. This is what we're going to continue through the scriptures, but I want to give you a, a framework to understand what he's going to say. This is exactly what he's going to say. Let me give you an example of this. You may remember back in Luke chapter seven. So this is Jesus. And if you've heard this story, pardon me, it won't hurt us to hear it again. I want you to hear it with this lens. So Jesus is at a Pharisee's house and his name is Shimon, Simon. So he's eating with Simon and you probably know they would recline 
on, on their left side and everybody's eating around the table and their feet are all behind them. That's just what they did. They didn't invent chairs yet. So anyway, so they're lying down and their feet are behind them. And this woman comes in and she's just quietly crying and she's, her tears are falling on Jesus' feet and she's wiping his feet with her hair. And so they're eating, you know, they get the bread and they dip and they eat and they may be talking. And so the Pharisees are like, we know who that woman is. She is a lady of ill repute. She's a sinner. She's not in good graces. And if he was really a prophet, if he was really a holy man, he would know this and he would not tolerate this. He'd kick her out of here so fast. He wouldn't have anything to do with her. He wouldn't touch her. He's probably ritually unclean. Who knows where she's been, right? And Jesus knows that they are saying this amongst each other. And so he says, Simon, I have a question for you. And Simon says, speak on, teacher. And he says to Simon, he said, Simon, there was a man one time who was forgiven a debt of a million dollars, wiped out the debt. And there was another man who was forgiven a debt of $50, wiped out the debt. Which one is going to love his creditor the most? And he said, well, I, obviously the one who's had the million dollar debt canceled is going to love him more. And he says, you've spoken well, Simon, because she has had her many sins forgiven. And so she loves greatly. He says, but you, Simon, have had few sins forgiven. He said, those who are forgiven little, love little. That's a very interesting thing to say. And it doesn't sound like he's condemning Simon. He's making an observation. Those who are forgiven little, love little. That's this concept. Sometimes we completely forget the top part of this verse. And we don't think about what we used to be. All we think about is the benefits that we now have. In fact, I don't know about you, but there have been times in my Christian life where I didn't exactly say these words to God, but I had kind of a cocky attitude. And it was kind of like, God, the day that I joined the team was a good day for you. I mean, be honest. You, you guys have, no, nobody's done. Okay, that's just me. Never mind. I'll get counseling. We'll be fine. But I honestly, you can get a little self-righteous, can't we? Like, I'm doing really good, especially those of us that are like Sisyphus. I don't know about you, but when I'd get that stone near the top of the hill, I'd be thinking, doing pretty good. You got to be proud of me. I'm doing really well. God and I, we're just like that, right? And so... You, you can get this sense that I don't remember what I was. I just know how good I'm doing now. And that can really turn us into the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, doesn't it? It kind of turns us into a Simon. Like, I don't think I've been forgiven very much. At least not lately. I'm doing really well. And by the way, if you want proof Oh, Bob over there, he's not doing nearly as well as I am. In fact, did you hear what Bob's been doing? I mean, is this sounding reasonable to you? This, this happens. The flip side of this, so that's not good, is it? That's self-righteousness. And that's what Keller was talking about. There's not a lot of joy 
there's not a lot of peace because you know what? I gotta keep running on the treadmill because if I'm not doing very well, what then do I think? Well, maybe God's not so proud of me. Maybe I'm not doing so well. Maybe God doesn't love me. I'm playing the Sisyphus game, aren't I? I'm rolling the rock up. And heaven forbid, it rolls back to the bottom because now I feel terrible. Not a lot of joy, not a lot of, a lot of peace. The flip side is you don't realize the second part of this verse, but you definitely realize the first part. I am a bad person. There are people who walk around thinking I'm not loved and I'm not lovable. And that's true. Most people don't love them. And that's because, yes, you are a great sinner. I'm just be honest with you. That's just true. There's no room for sentimentality. There are just sinners in the world. And yes, you are one of them. But without knowing the other side of it, where does that leave you? That leaves you in a really dark place, unloved, unwanted, alienated from God, without hope in the world. And so obviously that person has no joy and no peace because you think there's no hope. So I want you to think about this verse in this way. I hope you never, hope you read this verse a lot and hope you never read it without seeing this gap in between. But a healthy knowledge of who I used to be and a healthy knowledge of who God says I am now leaves a gap that gets filled up, that gap is the sense of my joy and my peace. Does that make sense? I really want you to think about that because we're gonna look at the text, but this is what he's gonna say, is how you are thinking about this, how cognizant I am. That doesn't mean you have to have a guilt trip every day and say, oh my goodness, when I think about how bad I was, I feel so guilty, I feel so awful. No, there, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But you know what's healthy is remembering, God, I remember what you did for me. And I will never forget what you did for me. I know what I'm capable of doing. I know what I have done. And you loved me anyway. Think Romans 5. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And I think it's, it's healthy for us to remember that. Don't lose sight of that fact. Marty says it this way, and I like it when, when he says this, this is how I hear it. He says, it's good for us to remember what it was like when we first walked through the doors of the church. Because if we've been here a long time, we're really comfortable and thank God we are with the second part of this verse, that you are loved beyond imagining by God and by his grace he lavished his love and saved us by his grace. We know that. We know that very well. But I suspect when we first walked through, we didn't know that nearly as well as we knew the first part. And that is, I'm really nervous because I don't have my act together. Does that make sense? So when he says that, let's try to remember what that was like. Here's what I hear it is, it should not be hard for me to remember that is it's healthy for me to remember that because when I see where I was and where God has brought me, everything in between that just gets filled up with joy and it gets filled up with peace. That gap is absolutely essential. This is the basis for living the Christian life. It has nothing to do with achievement because you didn't do anything to get here. 
And you really don't have to go do stuff to stay here. Here's the catch. Here's the idea of the Christian life. So let's get back to Paul. He says, now I say this and I testify in the Lord. What does that mean? It means this is God's word. This is not Paul's opinion. This is what God says to you. You must no longer live like the Gentiles do. In the futile, I want you to see this. This is really interesting. Uh, I want to highlight this. How do the Gentiles live? Gentiles are people that aren't following Christ. Let's just update it today. These are people that don't follow Christ. You can't live like those folks do. Why? Because of the futility in their minds... They are darkened in their understanding and they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and greed and practicing all kinds of impurities. This is very interesting because when he says, when he talks about the Gentiles, he doesn't say what you would expect. You can't live like the Gentiles. They don't bathe very well. They eat forbidden food. They have very bad sexual morals. I hear they're not trustworthy in business. He doesn't go there, does he? He doesn't start listing out all the things that are wrong. That comes at the end. He's, what does he say? He says they think about the world in a futile way. Think you were dead in your sins when you used to follow the way of this world. They're just caught up in the way of this world. They're darkened in their understanding. They really don't realize that there really is a God and I really am alienated from him and I need a savior. And they are ignorant, meaning literally they do not understand. And that makes them hard of heart and that is what leads to sensuality and greed and these other things. It starts here and here, and it ends up in my behavior. That is a crucial idea. You'll see that everywhere in the New Testament. It's all about the thought, the heart. Think Romans 12, 2, for example. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. In other words, don't act like worldly people. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Think differently, be different have different affections. I don't really want to say feel differently. I want to say set your heart on something that's worth your love. Not fame, power, sex, greed, whatever. We set our hearts on a lot of things. It's saying set your heart on God because he's worthy of your love. This idea is that the change, the Christian life doesn't start in a list of behaviors. It starts by joining a family and changing the way you think about the world. One more. He says, because that's not how you learned Christ. You didn't learn Christ by a list of rules. It says this, you were taught, and this is true, he says, you put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it is inherently corrupt. You can roll that boulder all you want up that mountain. You cannot make your old worldly self a good person. Can't happen. It's a Sisyphean task. It is doomed to failure. 
You can try all you want to become patient and kind and forgiving and loving, and it will not succeed. You do not have the ability, nor does your old self have the capacity to be that. This is radically different. This is the essence of the gospel, is you can't become a better person. You actually have to become a brand new person. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says, how can this be? And Jesus said, you can't do this. You have to be born again. That's this idea that runs all through scripture. Is God, Jesus didn't die so you and I could become Sisyphus and be a better person. He didn't die so that we could just become a moralistic therapeutic deist and kind of do whatever we want because he covered all my sins. Jesus died to make us brand new people. The old self is inherently dead. He says, and so you need to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self. Well, what is this new self? This new self looks like Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Because this new self is being formed by that spirit God put inside you. God's plan for you is not to be a better person, not to be a good person. It's to be a completely different person, a person who is being formed into the image of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined. This goes back to the he chose you before the foundation of the world. What did he predestine you to? Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Your destiny is to look like Jesus Christ, to become a child of God. This is a radically different way of looking at living the Christian life. Here's the way Paul says it in Romans 6, just same fundamental idea, and you're probably really familiar with this. He said, we were basically buried with Christ. His his death and our baptism, that's what that is. That's you acknowledging my old self is dying. When I go into this water, that's like Christ being buried. My old self is dead. And just as Christ was raised, we too might live in a brand new life. You see, this idea has nothing to do with following a checklist, has nothing to do with being your authentic self has everything to do with God, make me a brand new person. For we have been united in a death like his, we'll certainly be united in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might, be, might die with my old self. We would no longer be enslaved to sin. So you must consider, consider is a brain word, Think in this way. Colossians says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this world. We're talking about our minds and our hearts being refocused. The new self doesn't love the things the old self did. The new self doesn't think like the old self did. The new self is being shaped by the very spirit that is in us and sealed us. We become a new person. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. 
So I know this can sound a little philosophical, but I really want you to think about it because neither Sisyphus nor the prodigal son, that is not the way to live the Christian life. And it's just gonna be a roller coaster ride. And, it, and it, probably a lot of us have done that, been there, done that, and realized, yes, we'll get off the roller coaster. Think more, I joined a new family. When you join a new family, now, you've probably experienced this not by joining a new family. I mean, some of you may have, but, but not so much by joining a new family, but join a new team, become a part of a new organization. What do you do? You walk in and you start looking around at everybody else and you want to be part of the team and you want to know, how do we do things here? Uh, well, this is the way we do things in this company or this is the way we do things in this family. When you raised your kids, I hope that you taught them not so much rules, as this is what we do in our family. This is who we are. We don't cheat, we don't lie, we don't steal, we don't watch X-rated movies. I know your friends do, but we don't. We, you see what I'm saying? This is what we do in this family. Now all of a sudden, when you get into that, it doesn't feel like a bunch of regulations, does it? You're actually motivated like, I, I wanna be one of the kids. What do we do here? Tell me, I will soak it up. Now I want you to read this and read it with that lens. He says, we put away falsehood and we speak truth to each other because we are children. We are brothers and sisters. We may get angry, but we aren't gonna sin. He says, we, uh, we don't steal. In fact, we do honest work and you know what? The reason we do it is so that we can help people that don't have enough. We don't speak in ways that don't build people up. We try hard to say things that are encouraging and build people up. We don't gossip. Gossip tears people down, doesn't build people up. We don't wanna grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We want the Holy Spirit to have his way, like make me into Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit will do if you and I will get out of the way. We don't wanna be bitter, we don't wanna be angry, we don't wanna slander people, we don't wanna hold on to malice. In fact, we'd rather just be kind to one another. We'd rather forgive one another than fight with one another because honestly, I remember who I was. And I remember that great big gap. And I remember how much I've been forgiven. So you know what? Just like you would your brother or sister, it's okay. When you read this with that lens, and then again, look at this, same thing. He says, we don't uh, do sexual immorality. In fact, we don't even do the appearance of that. Or greed, greed is just not who we are. That's, that's not what we do. Uh, we don't do filthy or foolish talk. We don't like crude jokes. Uh, that's just not what we do here. All of a sudden you start reading that, that sounds a whole lot different than if you're Sisyphus, doesn't it? Now it doesn't sound like rules, it sounds like, tell me more. I remember when I became a Christian, my first thought was, what do you do now? And I remember being given a book with a list of rules. Okay, that's true, but it wasn't the best way. I quickly realized I need to find some, in my case, godly men, that I can hang around with. I'm sure some of you said godly women. And it's like, well, I wanna, I wanna see how do we do things in this family. And I couldn't get enough of it. I was so happy to be in this family. I was so happy that God rescued me from a dead end life to this. It's like, hey, I, teach me. I wanna know everything about what it is to be part of this family. I didn't think of it as rules and regulations. I couldn't get enough of, oh, okay, this is how we're gonna start to act. This is how we're gonna start to treat each other. That is a completely different way of living the Christian life. There's not a lot of guilt in that. Did I do it all right away? No, but I remembered 1 John 1, 9. If I'm faithful to confess my sins, he's faithful to forgive my sins. 
You get new start every day. I mean, why is that not peaceful and joyful? It is, if we think about living the Christian life in that way. Question. Yes, back in um, verse 34, 30, Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Can you elaborate on what that means? Yeah, there's two passages in the New Testament about that. One is don't grieve the Spirit. The other is don't quench the Spirit. And here, I'm going to give you my understanding of this just in the broad theological framework. We do have choices. You, you can make choices. You know, you don't earn your salvation. You can't make a choice to be saved. You're saved by God's grace, not by my choice. But I can cooperate with God. I don't become a robot. You know, and God says, okay, you're going to do everything right now because I'm pulling your strings. No, you retain who you are. This is a willing. In order to love God, you have to be able to say, you know what? I willingly will die to self. This is Luke chapter 9. If you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me every day. I just, I say this to you because I want you to realize everywhere you read in the New Testament, this is what it's going to say. So the idea of denying yourself, and it doesn't mean I become Sisyphus. I'm doing it on my own. The Spirit's the one that's powering this. I'm just cooperating. That's probably the best word I like to use. So when I read, don't quench the Spirit, don't grieve the Spirit, it means quit fighting the Spirit. Does that make sense? Let's cooperate and let's not fight the Spirit of God. Some of you probably honestly would say, I have done that before. Oh, I have too. I, I think you probably know my story. After I became a Christian, and so I'm just fired up and I want to be part of the family, and life goes on, and somebody introduced me, had a friend who uh, introduced me to the idea of backsliding. I did not know you could do that, but you can. And you can. Now, why would you do it? I don't know. Looking back, it's like you were a moron, Terry. What are you doing giving up this for the world, right? And so I decided to go backslide for a little while and moved away. That is, to me, experientially. So take this as my opinion. See what your experience is. God didn't keep me from grieving the Spirit or quenching the Spirit. You know, in other words, if, if I wanted to step off the path, he's not going to make me a robot. He loved me, and he still came after me, and you probably have had that story before, and I came back, I repented, you know, think prodigal son, maybe not quite that bad, but think prodigal son. You know, I came back and I said, I was a fool, and he said, I know, and uh, he said, and I love you, and come on, you're still part of my family, in fact, I've killed the fattened calf. I mean, this is the prodigal son story. Like, I still love you. And you're like, seriously, you do? Yeah, that part of Ephesians chapter two is still true. Because of my great love with which I loved you, I've made you alive in Jesus Christ. Wow. And that refueled my peace and joy because I realized not only did you save me once. Now, I don't want you to take this theologically. I just want to say, you took me back. And so it made that gap even bigger for me. And that was, that was impactful to me. I'll just, I'm sharing an experience with you. You can make up your own mind. But for me, it made me realize, wow, God, I am worse than I thought I was. I have the capacity to even say no to you when you love me. And you are better 
than I hoped you would be. Does that make sense? I have the capacity to be worse than I thought I did, and you are better than I even hoped that you could be. God has been gracious to me to make that gap big, and that's a blessing. Being aware of my capacity to be unfaithful to him has actually made me joyful in how good he really is. And I, I would just commend that to you as the Christian life. And so I put the picture of the family there because if you will think about it in that way, that means you can quit keeping score, you can do away with your performance chart, right? And you can pursue this like I joined a family. I am forgiven. I don't have to earn anything. They're not gonna kick me out of this family. I would argue I might leave this family, prodigal son, they're not gonna kick me out of this family. And so what is my natural response is I wanna know everything there is to know about this family and I wanna love you the way I've been loved. That's a great way to think about living the Christian life and you will start to see peace and joy. I do think it's hard for us to unlearn some of the things because I think our natural tendency is either to be a prodigal or to be Sisyphus. And I think that's why this scripture's here. That's why he writes this to them. I mean, have you ever wondered, why does he write this? Don't they all know this? No. Their natural reaction is the same as yours and mine. They're gonna, they're gonna try to earn it, and he's gonna like forget that. Just remember who you were and who you are. And now this, think about the commands in the New Testament as basically this is who we are and this is how we do things in our family. So here's the way I would phrase these, quote, commands, these instructions. They are not optional. They're not optional. This is how we do things in the family. But they're not transactional. Do you see what I'm saying? This is the same way in your family. If you've got a child, it's not optional. You've got to follow the rules, whatever it may be. You, know, you can't hit your brother or you can't do this because that's not optional. That's not who we are. But if you do, we're not putting you on the doorstep. In other words, our love and our relationship isn't transactional. All right, you know, I don't, hopefully you've never said this to your kids. You got two strikes, one more, you're out of here, you know? No, you wouldn't say that to your kid, but the behavior's not optional. Think about it that way. It, these, these things he's saying are not optional, but they're not transactional. It's not like if I fail to live up to something like this, oh my gosh, God might disown me. No, he's not gonna disown you. There's a great sense of peace in living the Christian life that way, okay? So the lack of questions means one of two things. You already knew all this and you're really bored. Or you're thinking about it, and I really want you to think about it. And don't be afraid or ashamed because we all are this way if you slip back in. And I want you to have that image of Sisyphus because you're all Americans, and Americans in general are type A achievers. That's who we are. And so our tendency is probably going to be to be Sisyphus. And if you find yourself trying to earn your salvation one way or another, remind yourself, this is a family. I don't get kicked out and I don't get loved based on how well I push that, that boulder. If you're a millennial, 
you're probably a moralistic therapeutic deist. I'm just kidding. Actually, that's what the stats would show. So you guys need to try harder. No, I just made that up. In all seriousness, just let this idea of who I was and who God says I am, let that really seep into our hearts, okay? So what are we gonna talk about next? We're gonna go to easy subject. No class next Wednesday, but then we're gonna talk about gender roles. Why are we gonna talk about gender roles? Not because I wanna talk about gender roles, but it's in the letter. And they were having trouble with gender roles. Fortunately, we don't anymore. <laughs> and so we're gonna see what does Paul have to say about gender roles. So I'll see you guys in two weeks. <laughs>